All right, happy Resurrection Day, Central Church, and everyone that's visiting with us. Greg Gold, good to see you this morning and your family. How's everything going? I didn't get to greet you there, so yeah. Can you stand up for a minute? No, okay. <laughs> if you're watching us online this morning, our uh, website or Facebook Live or scattered in the concourse, just great to have you this morning, everyone that's here live. Uh, we're going to incorporate uh, our, our Easter sermon into our larger teaching series. We've been in a series called When. It's a study in the book of Psalms. Uh, so if you have a Bible this morning, please take it out and turn to Psalm 16. We're going to look at a few verses in Psalm 16 in just a moment. If you need a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you or under the seat if you're up front. Chels, how are you today? Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for asking. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your power that works in us as your people. And Thank you, Lord, for the, the resurrection that gives life, that gives hope. Lord, I pray this morning as we gather here, and for those watching us online this morning, God, that indeed the power of the resurrection would permeate everything about us and change us. Lord, as a result of, of looking into the Scriptures this morning, we ask that the Holy Spirit would give us insight and help us to understand what we're reading and studying, and Lord, that we'd live differently as a result of this. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So expectations are, are everything when it comes to making a commitment. In other words, you need to know what you're getting into before you commit to it. You need to, you need to be able to make realistic or, or have realistic expectations about whatever you're going to commit to um, before you make that commitment. So um, I was a former high school basketball coach, and when I coached my guys, I would, I would tell them, before the season started, all of the expectations that I had for them. And then I would have a parent meeting. And if you're a coach, you know what that parent meeting is like. And you kind of go over the whole season. You, you share with them in advance your expectations. And they, they need to be in agreement with the, with the expectations of the coach before they make the commitment to the season and to the team. And so in that parent meeting, I would, I would explain everything. I'd go over the game schedule with them. I'd, I'd tell them about our practice schedule. I'd talk about bus times for games what the consequences were if their, if their son missed the bus for a particular game. Um, I would talk to them about what their sons could or could not eat on game days. Um, we tried to monitor some of their, their food intake and make sure they're hydrated and those kinds of things. Um, we talked about proper protocol. Uh, when, when they got frustrated with me because their son wasn't playing as much as they thought they should, there was a time and a place and a space to do that. There's an appropriate way and an inappropriate way to approach a coach and talk to him about your son's playing time or whatever it is if you're frustrated. You don't, you don't come down in the middle of the game and pull me off the bench and start talking about what a bad coach I am or sit in the stands right behind me and start telling all the parents what a bad coach I am. So there's protocol. That, and then I would go over the season schedule and I would tell the parents, unfortunately, basketball season is over both Thanksgiving break and Christmas break. So, you know, most students get time off for Thanksgiving and Christmas in school. Unfortunately, we have both practices and games over the, those breaks. And so I need your sons there for practice and I need your sons there for games so you can't do family vacations and things like that. So I got done with the meeting and I had, I had a mom come up and a big smile on her face and she said, Coach Wheeler, we are so glad you're the coach. It was my first year. She said, we really think you're the guy you know, for, to coach at this time with these boys and it's going to be a great season. I just needed to let you know that every year my family takes a ski vacation to Mammoth Mountain over Christmas vacation. So my son, will, he'll have to miss those practices and those games. I said, that's fantastic. 
Like, how cool is that to take your whole family on a ski vacation up to Mammoth? That's, that's wonderful. I'm really glad you guys get to do it. She said, yeah. She said, my, my other kids come, whether they're in college or whether they come back, and we all do this together. It's so fun. I said, I am so excited for you. Your son just can't play on my team. But have a great time on that ski trip. She's like, wait, wait, wait. What are you talking about? I said, I just shared with you guys that, that we have games and practices. What if every one of my players decided they wanted to go on a ski vacation during Christmas break? I wouldn't have a team. We'd forfeit games, so we can't do that. So you have to think through the commitment that you're making based on the expectations. She said, Coach, are you telling me that basketball is more important than family? I said, only February through, um, or only November through February. <laughs> then you can have your son back and you can go and do whatever you want. But yes, basketball is more important than family those four months. So make the decision. Do you want your son to play? Do you understand the expectations or not? You can go skiing every week if you want. If he doesn't play basketball, it doesn't matter to me. Marriage is the same way, isn't it? Before we make a commitment to being married, we need to understand what we're getting into. We need to understand the expectations that come with that. Expectations just for marriage in general and then the specific expectations that the person we're marrying has for that relationship. So anybody that gets married through Central, if they do premarital counseling through us, uh, we take them through an analysis called Prepare and Enrich. And, and that analysis deals with a number of topics, finances, family history, and, and a number of things. And one of those is called Idealistic Distortion. Idealistic distortion. And, and what that is, it, that measures the extent to which a person distorts their relationship in a positive direction. In other words, they have unrealistic, positive uh, ideas about what that relationship's going to be like. In other words, they're looking at their relationship through rose-colored glasses. They, they don't see that things are going to get hard. They don't think things are going to be negative. Everything is perfect, and they think the rest of their lives are going to be perfect without challenges and those kinds. So how do they measure on that issue of idealistic distortion. So we ask them a number of, or we give them a number of statements, and we ask them to score them. So one would be, I completely disagree, or I strong, strongly disagree with that statement. Five would be, I strongly agree with that statement. So, so one of the statements on, on the analysis is this, every new thing I've learned about my partner has, ple has pleased me. And, and they both put five. And so I turn to her, and I say, have you seen his shower or toilet in his apartment? I'm pretty sure it's not going to please you when, you when you see that. And I turn to him and I say, do you have any idea how long it takes her to do her makeup and to get ready just to go to Culver's? Like, the, the, like you're going to be sitting in that chair for hours going, I'm so hungry. What is she doing in there, right? I, I'm pretty sure that's not going to please you. Another, another statement they have to respond to is this. My partner completely understands and sympathizes with, with my every mood. She scores five on that. She says five. I, yeah, that's exactly right. And I say to her, which moods have you shown him so, so far? I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure the full repertoire is not on display yet because there are going to be moods that neither does he fully understand nor sympathize with. Here, here's another statement. My partner and I understand each other completely. He scores five. He says, I completely agree with that. I'm like, dude, come on, dude, how can you put a five on that? It's a trick question because no man in the history of the world has ever fully understood a woman. You're not going to be the first pal that completely understands your partner. It just, it just doesn't happen. Expectations. 
before we make a commitment. I want to talk about spiritual expectations today. Specifically, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ change the expectations for me as a follower of Christ? How does the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and I'm going to talk about our participation in that, how does that affect the expectations for us in terms of how we live as Christians? That's where I want to go today. So Easter Sunday is a day that we celebrate the physical or bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus was alive physically, hung on the cross, died on the cross physically, and on the third day rose physically from the dead, right? That's, that's the story of Easter. But did you know that the New Testament teaches that if you are a Christ follower, if you are a Christian, then you have, you have been raised with Jesus. You have participated in his resurrection from the dead. You've been resurrected to new life. Did you know that the New Testament says if you're a Christian, that happened to you? The Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says this. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now, that, that, that means exactly what it says, that you were raised to life, you were resurrected to spiritual life, not physical life, you were already alive physically, but you were resurrected spiritually, you were dead in sin, and then you were brought to life. It, it, it doesn't mean that that's just a concept, it's reality. It doesn't mean that that's symbolic. I was symbolically raised with Jesus. No, there's substance to it. It's not just a doctrine. It's a daily reality and truth that we live out in our lives. Here's the problem. I run into a lot of Christians that either believe or simply live as though their being raised from the dead is just symbolic. It, it, there's no reality to it it's just a theory. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept. It, it's symbolic. I, I know the Scripture says sort of symbolically I was raised with Jesus, but that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says you were literally dead and you were raised from de death to life through Christ. You participated in His resurrection spiritually. Again, not physically, but spiritually. Friends, that's a game changer. That, that totally changes the game of what it means. It changes the expectations for being a Christian. Because if I've been raised with Christ, if I've been resurrected to a new life, that means the expectations are that I will live a new life. If, if it's just theory, if it's just symbolic, if it's just a concept, but it actually didn't happen to me, then I don't have the power to live differently. And unfortunately, I run into a lot of Christians that live that way. I really haven't been changed. I attend church. I believe in Jesus and all that. But I really haven't been resurrected in Christ. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? If we participate in his resurrection, what are the implications for our life? And the first is this. My morals have been raised. If I've been raised with Christ, my morals have been raised. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 says this, You were dead, spiritually dead, in your offenses or transgressions and sins in which you previously walked. That is, before you, 
came to Christ and were raised to new life. You were dead in sin, and you walked according to the course of this world. Say the course of this world. The course of this world is the way the world operates. It's the way the world behaves. It's the, the, the moral level that the world lives at. It's, 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 it's how they live their lives. And he says, you previously walked according to the course of the world. The implication is you don't walk that way anymore. You don't live like the world lives. You don't walk like the world walks. You don't behave like the world behaves because you've been raised from the dead. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's a reference to Satan, the spirit that, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, the way the world operates and the operation of Satan, and he, we all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Before we found Christ, we were no different from the world. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead spiritually in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He literally raised you from the dead. You were dead in sin and he made you alive and he raised you up and he seated you with Christ in heavenly places. So, so you now have been raised through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to sit with Jesus in his place of authority. It means that you are above the power of sin and the power of Satan. We used to walk according to the course of this world. We used to be under the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, but we've been raised above that. In other words, now as we live our lives, we live by a moral standard that's higher than the moral standard of the world. We live differently. If you've not been raised with Christ, literally, spiritually, then you don't have the power to live above the world, and God hasn't raised you to that place in your life. But because we've been raised, because we have a different moral standard than the world has, it means that when it comes to sexual purity, we live by a higher moral standard. It means when it comes to profanity or the things that come out of our mouths, we have a higher moral standard that we are living to than the world does. It means when it comes to alcohol use, you are living by a higher moral standard than the world. What the world does is not acceptable for those that follow Christ. We live by a different moral standard. It means that our perception, our view of marriage and divorce is at a higher moral level than the world. We, we don't just jump in and out of marriage and relationships anytime we want. There's more value to that that God has placed on it. So if you've been raised with Christ, you have been empowered by Jesus Christ through the resurrection to live at a level that you were not able to live at before because we used to just live like the rest of the world. But now in Christ, we've been raised in power to live at a higher standard. That's the challenge for us in Christ. So do you know what I am as a Christian in this world? I'm a moral misfit. I, I don't belong here. I live in a different kingdom. I belong to a different kingdom. I, I, I live by a different moral value system. I, I, I follow a different king. I'm under a different power. 
People in your life should, should not necessarily like you because of the way you live, because it exposes the way they live. So then the question would be, well, Jeff, there's this, this high moral standard that God calls us to, that, that He empowers us to live at, but what if we fall short of that? What, what if we blow it and fail and don't live up to that standard? Is there forgiveness and is there grace? Of course there is. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that we do fall short of God's standard. But listen, grace never lowers the standard. Because you fail doesn't mean that the, the standard gets lowered to, to meet your level of comfort. The resurrection empowers us to rise to the standard. So if you are in Christ, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ affect you? You've been raised to new life to live at a different level that before you didn't have the power to live at. But there's an expectation in God that you would continue to seek that level and be different from the world. Are you walking that out? Have you been changed by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And are you living at a higher level? Not only do our morals get raised, but our values get raised. Our values get raised. So Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, and a better translation of that is since you've been raised with Christ. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, heavenly things, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seek His kingdom. Seek His rulership. Seek His will and purpose. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. What has the resurrection produced in your life, this, this desire to live by a new value system, to, to seek the things that are above. In other words, now we are to seek to build God's kingdom, not our own. Our life should be marked by building the kingdom of God, His kingdom, not our own empire. Our, our lives should be marked by investing in things that will live forever, not things that will end with this life. How are you doing with that? Giving your life away. The, the word seek in, in Colossians 3.1 is a word that Jesus used on a number of occasions. And it means to, to, to intensely pursue something, to be diligently focused on something. Uh, he used the word to talk about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep. And if, if, if one wandered off and got lost, it says that the, the shepherd will leave the 99 in the wilderness and he will seek or search for the one that's wandered. I mean, it's a diligent pursuit. The shepherds were responsible financially for every sheep. If they lost one, they had to pay for it. So when they went out to find a lost sheep, they were diligent in their pursuit. They were focused in their pursuit. Paul says it's that word, seek the things above. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek his value system in your life. Jesus also used that to talk about a merchant that was searching for, for valuable pearls in the marketplace. It says he went looking to find the, the valuable pearl, and when he finds it, he sells everything he has in order to purchase that pearl. There's, there's diligence, intensity related to that, a pursuit of God's kingdom and not our own. When I think of that concept, when I think of, of, of what that means, I, I think of a couple in our church, Dr. Dave and Jane Munson. Some of you may know Dave and Jane Munson. This is when they were married. Uh, Dave's in his 70s now, uh, so they were married quite a few years ago. This is a more recent picture of them. 
Dave and Jane have been in Central over 40 years. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about, about Dave. Uh, Dave is a, is a highly admired and revered uh, doctor in Sioux Falls. Um, started the NICU here. Uh, is obviously well off financially and, and could be pursuing a lot of things in life that if you have money, you could pursue. And he's now in his 70s. But Dave, when I came, Dave was on our elder board. And Dave had served on the elder board before. Dave's probably served on every board in the church. Dave has taken medical mission trips with our church and probably with other churches that I don't even know about. But he went to Ethiopia with our team to establish some medical procedures and things in Ethiopia. Right now, Dave and his partner in crime, Phil Glanzer, both guys in their 70s, every week lead one of our student ministries small groups of guys. They're seniors now in high school. The amazing thing is not that Dave and Phil lead this group every Wednesday night all during the school year and commit their time to that, but they've been doing this for seven years. They started when these guys were in sixth grade. That's not my idea of retirement. My idea of retirement is not meeting with sixth grade boys every Wednesday night for the school year. And then when they get into seventh grade, same thing. When they get into eighth grade, same thing, all the way through their senior year. And they are beloved by these boys. Dave and Phil just pour into them every week into their life. Let me tell you a little bit about, about Jane. Jane was a nurse by profession. Um, Jane serves in our, in our kids' ministry once a month. Da uh, Jane is in leadership in our women's ministry called Woven. Um, every, every Monday, Jane goes down to Joe Foss and rocks babies of teenage moms who are trying to finish their high school education. So she goes down there and watches their kids while they can go and finish their education. Jane's been involved in local jail ministry ever since I got here, which was 11 years ago, just going and visiting female inmates, trying to encourage them and help them. They, they, they don't have to do that. Dave and Jane together now are part of our marriage academy. They, they mentor a couple that's mar whose marriage just needs a little bit of encouragement and strength. For the next 11 months, they're going to be meeting once or twice a month with this couple just to pray with them, support them, and encourage them. I don't know about you, that's a great example to me of someone that's kingdom-minded, someone that's investing their life in things that are going to last forever, not things that are going to pass away with this life. How are you doing with that? Have your values been raised? Is your life about the kingdom of God or your own kingdom? Are you still chasing the things that people in this life chase, money and possessions and fame and physical beauty and, and, and all of those things like the world does? Are you worldly-minded or kingdom-minded? See, when you've been raised with Christ, you are to continue to seek, continue to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You're to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. That's what's to, to mark your life. And the resurrection gives you the power to do that, to empty yourself so others can be filled. Not only being raised with Christ raises our morals, and not only does it raise our values, but it, it raises our hope. It raises our hope. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, born of the Spirit, saved, to be born again to a what? Living hope, not a dead hope, not a theoretical hope, not a symbolic hope, right? Not a conceptual hope, but a living hope, a real hope. 
a hope that you live with every day. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So your participation in the resurrection of Jesus gives hope. You are, you are to live with a, this living hope. And so we are to have both daily and eternal hope that we are going to see God's goodness. Hope, not because we're going to fix our circumstances, but hope that life is going to change, our circumstances are going to get better because God is good. Amen? Amen. God is, is, is only and always good. He never changes. And so as we walk with him, we have this, this living hope, this joyful expectation that our lives are going to turn for good because God is good. So Romans 8.28 says, we know, we're convinced that God causes all things to work together for what? For good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We have an expectation. We are convinced, Paul says, that no matter what you're going through, God is working right now to bring good. So you have this living hope. You don't, you don't have the discouragement and the emptiness and the darkness of the world who has no hope, who doesn't know whether God's goodness is going to be seen in their life. We have hope. We have confidence that we're going to see the goodness of God. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for what? Good, not for disaster, not for, for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's the goodness of God that anchors our hope in Him. Whether you, you realize it or not, the plans of God for your life are plans for good, not for disaster. If you're going through disaster, if you're going through heartache, if you're going through a challenging time, the plan of God for you is for good. Paul says he's working right now to move this toward goodness so you have a living hope. The world doesn't have that hope. Paul said, Paul said that hope is for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. If you're a Christ follower, you have that hope. You are to live with that hope. Believing God's goodness is going to be seen in your life. David in the Psalms said, I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have despaired like everybody else. I would have feared like everybody else. I would have been anxious like everybody else if I did not believe that God is good and I would see his goodness in my life. Where are you today? What are you, what are you going through? The health crisis? Family crisis? Dark period in your soul? What, what, what are you dealing with today? You're, we're not excused from a living hope because we're going through difficult circumstances. It's in those difficult circumstances that that living hope should come to the surface because we expect to see the goodness of God. There's another reason we can have living hope. It's because God by nature is a restorer of broken things. Here's what we read. Psalm 23.3, David says about God, he, he's my shepherd and he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Psalm 23 is a shepherd psalm. It's, it's sheep language. And, and sheep, because of their, their stature, because of their body type, top heavy with, with really short little legs that, that aren't very strong, if they get, if they get turned over, it's very difficult for sheep to get back on their, their feet by themselves. When, when David says, he restores my soul, he's talking about a cast sheep, a sheep that's world's been turned upside down, who needs the shepherd to come and restore him, put his feet back on the ground. That's what the Lord does in our lives. He restores our soul. When our life gets turned upside down, he begins to put us back on our feet. Why do we have a living hope? Because we believe in the goodness of God and that God restores 
what's been broken or damaged in life. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18. This is a prophecy uh, of Jeremiah when the, the people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon. They were there 70 years. But toward the, uh, excuse me, toward the end of that, the prophets began to say that God was going to restore the, 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 the lives of the Jews. And he says in verse 18, this is what the Lord says, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. I'm, I'm going to restore them to their land and have compassion on his dwellings. And the city will be rebuilt on its ruins. What a great prophecy for you. What a great word for you. The, the city, the walls that have been destroyed, God says, I'm going to rebuild them. God says, I'm going to put them back together. God, God says, I'm going to bring restoration in your life. And he goes on. Nope, let's back up. And the city will be rebuilt on its ruins and the palace will stand on its rightful place. The, the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 5, says, he who sits on the throne, God says, behold, I am making all things what? New. Why do they need to be made new? Because they've either been destroyed or broken or injured in some way. Everything on the other side of this life in heaven with God gets renewed. Whatever was lost gets restored because God is a restorer of our lives. So we have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a, it's a hope that's based on resurrection. If you, have, if you have literally been resurrected from the spiritual, as a spiritual dead person to life, that means that God has given birth in your heart to a living hope. You have living hope because you know God's good and you're going to see his goodness and because God is a restorer of all things. Jesus was the perfect representation of God. The Bible says that when Jesus came, if we saw Jesus, we saw God. When Jesus spoke, it was God speaking. When Jesus loved, it was God loving. When Jesus cared, it was God caring. Everything Jesus did was a perfect representation of God. So what did Jesus go around doing? Jesus went around restoring sight to the blind. Jesus went around restoring hearing to the deaf. Jesus went around restoring skin to the leper. Jesus went around and restored dignity to the prostitute. He restored sanity to the demon-possessed. Jesus went around representing who God was, and by nature, he's a God of restoration. And God is in the process right now, if you are a Christ follower, of restoring your life. And even if there's something that God doesn't restore in this life, he's going to restore it in the next one. That's why we have living hope. It's a hope for this life. It's a daily hope, but it's also a hope for eternal life. So friends, there, there's, there's something you have to consider today related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, you have given the power of Christ's resurrection to live differently morally, to rise above the sinfulness of the world, the waywardness of the world. You have been empowered by the resurrection of Jesus to live at a higher level. Are you living that way? You've been empowered, if you've been raised with Christ, to, to keep seeking the things above, to not get caught up in the things of this world. If you, if you have been raised with Christ, you, you have been born into a living hope. You have constant hope because of the goodness of God, 
And because God is a restorer of all things, you can walk in this hope. I don't know about you. When I look at the world, I don't see hope. When I look at our nation, I don't see hope. When I look in our community, those that don't know the Lord, I don't see hope. I see darkness. When I look at our world, when I look at internationally, wars, suffering, brokenness, I don't see hope. I don't hear hope. And God has put you here, and God has raised you from the dead spiritually so that you can be living hope to the world. And if you've not been raised with Jesus Christ, you don't have that living hope. Or if you believe that it's just theoretical and symbolic but not real in your life, then you're not going to walk in that living hope. But God has put people in your life that are hopeless. He said, you're the light of the world. You're the hope of the world. You are a city set on a hill so that people can find light and hope in this life. Are you living it out? You can only live it out if you've been raised with Christ and you're walking in a living hope. He's called you with divine purpose. He has a plan for your life. Yes, when you fall short of his moral standard for your life, there's grace and forgiveness but then there's more resurrection power to, to raise to that level of living that God has called you to as an example to this world that things can be different. You're living proof if you've been raised with Christ. If you believe that you've been literally, spiritually empowered from death to life, then you can live like God wanted you to live. And some of you today have never experienced that. You've been to church. You're here on Easter. We're so glad you're here today. You, you, maybe you know the Easter story. Maybe you know the Christmas story. Maybe you know about Jesus. You believe that Jesus died on a cross and Jesus is who he says he was, but you've never surrendered to him. And you've never been raised from the dead. You can be raised from the dead right now. You, you can leave here a completely different person. Not in theory, not I believed something, I thought about some concept, but I was actually resurrected from the dead by Jesus Christ and his power. And if you'd like that this morning, I want to invite you to a life of resurrection. I want to invite you to a life that right now you don't have the power to live, but Christ can save you and give you a new life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And if that's you this morning, would you pray this with me? We, we say around here it's as easy as ABC. A, you just have to admit that you've sinned against God. You've, you've fallen short of that moral standard that he intended for you. B, you have to believe that, that Jesus Christ was God and he came to the earth and he lived a, a sinless life that no one else could live. And he went to the cross on Good Friday and he died to take your sin on himself. And then on the third day, he was raised to life so that you could be raised to life. You have to believe that Jesus can forgive your sin and give you a new life. Would you pray that with me this morning? Say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to be forgiven of sin. And I, I know that I don't have the power to live the kind of life you want me to live. But I invite you right now to raise me from the dead. I invite you, Lord, to forgive my sin, to, to cleanse me from every wrong thing I've ever done. And Lord, I, I confess that I need you. Would you resurrect me today, Lord? I, I commit myself to, to walking with you, with your power in Jesus' name. Amen. If you, if you prayed that just now and you meant that, you're experiencing the resurrection of Christ at this moment. 
And if you prayed that prayer, we want to help you with that decision. I'm just going to ask you to do one thing quickly. In, in the notes that you have today, in my, under my bulletin notes, there's a QR code. If, if you scan that sometime this week and, and pursue that, we will get back to you and we'll help you understand what it means to follow Christ in this life. Would you stand with me, everybody, this morning as we bring this time to a close? My question for you this morning is, are you going to be that hope to the world that God wants you to be? Are you going to live at that standard God wants you to live at? Would you pray with me? Lord, we believe this morning and we confess that we were raised with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. We were spiritually brought to life. And because of the resurrection, Lord, you've empowered us to live differently. So, Lord, please help us this week to live in a way that people in this life realize there's, there's hope for a different life. That people could realize that we can positively and confidently go about our life because we know we're going to see God's goodness and we know the Lord is the restorer of all things. God, help us this week to be your light in a really dark world. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Happy Easter. Have a fantastic day with family. God bless you.